First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. This is it. It is this, and it is us, and it's them, and it's us, and it's now. And here it is. And here we are. So, this is it. We return today to the first prong of our congregation's mission, to grow ethically and spiritually. Five weeks ago, on September 24th, I addressed growing ethically. There is teachable cognitive knowledge that's a big part of ethics. Learning propositional knowledge is an important chunk of growing ethically. You can take a class or read a book. That's not all there is to it. Ethical growth also requires habit formation, the forming of the habits to behave at a higher and higher ethical level. And having the cognitive propositional knowledge doesn't mean you'll have the habit of reminding yourself of that knowledge at the moments when you need it. Still, cognitive learning of propositional knowledge is a crucial part of ethical growth. To treat people well, we have to know about their situation, what harms them and what benefits them. And they can't always simply tell you. So some study is called for if we are to grow ethically. To grow spiritually, on the other hand, is a rather different kind of study. To illustrate, let me back up and use this opportunity to tell you some of my journey. I'm the firstborn child of rationalist, humanist, academic parents. I grew up and I went into the family business, being a rationalist, humanist, academic. Mom was a physics professor and later in her career, a chemistry professor. Dad was an English professor who specialized in 18th century British literature, the age of reason. And so I grew through childhood imbued with the implicit sense that the reason for being alive and on this planet was to do two things, learn stuff and teach it to others. I was in fourth grade in a small town in Georgia when I first heard the word atheist, and I asked what it meant, and shortly afterward decided that I was one. This was a scandal to my classmates. The scandal rather settled down after a week or so, but from then on through high school, I was the class atheist. Even so, Apart from a few kids who were hostile and a few others who undertook to try to save my soul, my classmates by and large politely ignored our differences of theological opinion. If there was a disconnect between us because of religion, looking back, I would have to say that the distance making, the wall building, came more from me than from them. As a child and a teenager, my sad heart hardened and chose contempt as its protective strategy. I was not the sort of atheist that went for spirituality, did not use that word for my experiences, nor did I think in terms of sacred or divine or transcendent. I wasn't so keen on awe or mystery or wonder either. But life happened. I grew. And even though I was learning more and more cognitive knowledge and was working as a teacher to tell others about it, life and I 
didn't always seem to fit together very well. I sensed that somehow more joy was possible, more peace, a greater belonging. Life has such tragedy in it. Loved ones die, wars kill thousands, people behave cruelly to each other, whether it's petty street thugs or corporate CEO thugs. And life also has such beauty in it. The birth of a child, flowers in springtime, an act of kindness, my beloved's kiss. The tragedy and the beauty were more than my academic fields of study could comprehend. The development of spiritual virtues, loving all of life, even the hard parts, equanimity, compassion, may be entirely, uh, may be entirely a matter of getting our neurons wired in a certain way, but the circuitry of spirituality draws on but is different from purely cognitive intelligence. It draws on but is different from the emotional circuitry. Native disposition genetics accounts for some of a person's spiritual qualities and virtue. Can you cultivate the spiritual virtues beyond your native disposition? Sort of. The term spirituality encompasses transcendent love, inner peace, all rightness, acceptance, awe, beauty, wonder, humility, gratitude a freshness of experience, a feeling of plenitude, abundance, and deep simplicity of all things. The oceanic feeling Sigmund Freud spoke of, calling it a sense of indissoluble union with the great all and of belonging to the universal. In moments of heightened spiritual experience, the gap between self and world vanishes. The normal experience of time leaves us, and each moment has a quality of the eternal to it. Symptoms of developing spirituality include increased tendency to let things happen rather than make them happen, more frequent attacks of smiling from the hearts, more frequent feelings of being connected with others, connected with nature, more frequent episodes of overwhelming appreciation. Decisions flow more from intention or spontaneity and less from fears based on past experience. Greater ability to enjoy each moment, decreased worrying, decreased interest in conflict, in interpreting the actions of others, in judging others and in judging self, increased non-judgmental curiosity, increased capacity to love without expecting anything in return, increased receptivity to kindness offered, and increased interest in extending kindness to others. By orienting toward the elevated, whether in compassion, ethics, art, or experience of divine presence, we transcend the ego defense mechanisms by which most of us spend most of our lives governed. Psychologist Robert Cloninger and his team at the Center for Well-Being of the Department of Psychiatry of School of Medicine of Washington University in St. Louis sought a way to define spirituality more definitely, empirically, and measurably. Their 240-item questionnaire is called the Temperament and Character Inventory. It includes spirituality, they call it self-transcendence, as one of the dimensions of character. As Cloninger measures it, 
Spirituality is the sum of three subscales, self-forgetfulness, transpersonal identification, and acceptance. First, self-forgetfulness. This is the proclivity for becoming so immersed in an activity that the boundary between self and others seems to fall away. Whether the activity is sports, painting, a musical instrument, we might sometimes lose ourselves in it, and the sense of being a separate, independent self takes a vacation. Second, transpersonal identification. This is recognizing oneself in others, and others in oneself. If you've ever found yourself looking at another person or another being with a feeling that you are that other, their body embodies you. Or if you've looked at yourself with a sense that your being embodies others, then you've experienced transpersonal identification. Spirituality involves connecting with the world's suffering and apprehending that suffering as your very own. Transpersonal identification goes beyond, there but for the grace of God go I. It's not that grace saves you from the unfortunate circumstance that others endure. Nothing saves you, because in fact you're not saved from those circumstances. If anyone is hungry, you're hungry. For the hungry are you. That's transpersonal identification. And third, acceptance. This is the ability to accept and affirm reality just as it is, even the hard parts, even the painful and the tragic parts. Spiritually mature people are in touch with the suffering of the world, yet also and simultaneously feel joy in that connection. Acceptance doesn't mean complacency about oppression, injustice, harm. Indeed, the spiritually mature are also often the most active and most effective in working for peace and social justice. They are energized to sustain that work because they can accept reality just as it is, even as they also work to change it. Because they are not attached to the results of their work, they avoid debilitating disappointment and burnout and are able to maintain the work of justice cheerfully. Because they find joy in each moment, they avoid recrimination and blame. They see that blame merely recapitulates the very reactivity that's at the root of the oppression. And together, add together your scores for self-forgetfulness, transpersonal identification, and acceptance, and the sum is your spirituality score. There you go. Here's the thing, though. It's not a matter of will, not a matter of volition. Spirituality is not volitional. It's not a matter of weighing the pros and cons and making a decision. You can't decide to be more spiritual or more spiritually mature. If you're low in spirituality, that is, as Cloninger finds, you are practical, self-conscious, materialistic, controlling, characterized by rational objectivity and material success. You can't wake up one morning and decide you're no longer going to be that way. It's who you are, and your own rational objectivity will very sensibly point out to you that you don't even know what it would mean to not be that way. What you can decide, what is a matter of will and volition, is whether to take up a certain kind of discipline called a spiritual practice, and just see where that takes you. Spirituality is not volitional. 
but taking up a spiritual practice is. What, you may ask, is a spiritual practice? I know that these days all kinds of things get called spiritual practice. So we may wonder how exactly do we differentiate between a spiritual practice and just something that you do. Quilting, piano playing, or hiking might or might not qualify as a spiritual practice. That is, might or might not tend to produce the symptoms of developing spirituality. An activity is more likely to work as a spiritual practice if you seriously treat it as one. First, treating a practice as a spiritual practice means engaging the activity with mindfulness. Focusing on the activity as you do it, with an, a sharp awareness of each present moment. Second, treating a practice as a spiritual practice means engaging in the activity with intention of thereby cultivating spiritual development. Reflecting as you do the activity, or just before or just after, on your intention to manifest those symptoms of spiritual development in your life. And third, Treating a practice as a spiritual practice means sometimes engaging the activity with a group that gathers expressly to do the activity in a way that cultivates spirituality, sharing each other's spiritual reflections before, during, or after doing the activity together. Fourth, and most of all, it requires establishing a foundation of spiritual openness. And there are three basic daily practices that I recommend for everyone that over time will develop a foundation upon which some other practice can grow into a real spiritual practice. Silence. I'd say 15 minutes a day being still and quiet, just bringing attention to your own amazing breathing. Journaling. 15 minutes a day writing about your gratitudes, your highest hopes, your experiences of awe. And study. 15 minutes a day reading wisdom literature, the essays of Pema Chodron or Thomas Merton, the poems of Rumi or Mary Oliver, the Tao Te Ching, the Bible's book of Psalms, just to mention a very few examples of wisdom literature. With these three daily practices building your foundation of spiritual awareness, then gardening or yoga or throwing pottery are much better positioned to truly be spiritual practices for you. Suppose that you got serious about maintaining a spiritual discipline. You engage your practice daily. You do it mindfully, you do it with intention to cultivate compassion, connection, non-judgmental curiosity, self-forgetfulness, transpersonal identification, and acceptance. You get together regularly with a group that helps you maintain and explore the spiritual focus of your practice, and you develop your base with daily silence, journaling, and study. What then? What will happen? If you do everything to ensure that your practice is a true, bona fide spiritual practice, and you do that spiritual practice long enough, every day for a year, or 10 years, or 30 years, will you then exude equanimity and compassion while unperturbable calm inner peace and beauty continuously manifests as you gracefully and lovingly flow through life? 
Maybe. I can offer no guarantees. Spirituality, as I mentioned, is not a matter of will. Strong muscles aren't a matter of of will either. That is, you can't just decide to bench press 500 pounds and then go do it. But at least with muscles, there's a fairly predictable timetable by which exercise increases strength. If you have a normal and healthy physiology and you adopt a regimen of exercise and stick to it, then you will reap the rewards of that regimen. There's a fairly smooth curve by which you'll progress toward the limit that that regimen can take you. But spiritual strengthening doesn't go like that. It's not a reliable product of putting in the time doing the exercise. The spirit has its own schedule. Committed, serious spiritual practitioners can go for years when their practice just seems void and useless. And then they can hit a patch where they actually seem to be regressing. They're acting as cranky and unkind, as disconnected and withdrawn on the one hand, or as controlling and, or as controlling on the other, as they ever had before they started any spiritual practice. There's no smooth curve of progress. I started my primary spiritual practice for the worst reason, because an authority told me to. 22 years ago, I was in Chicago trying to pass muster to become a minister, trying to prove that I was good enough. I had just finished my first year of divinity school, and I was meeting with the Midwest Regional Subcommittee on Candidacy. Do you have a spiritual practice? The committee asked me. Before starting seminary, I had spent two years as the congregational facilitator and preacher for the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of Clarksville, Tennessee. Before that, I'd served as president of our fellowship in Waco, Texas, as vice president of our church in Charlottesville, Virginia, and had worked as the church secretary for a year at our Nashville, Tennessee church. But did I have a spiritual practice? I was a born and raised Unitarian Universalist. I had a PhD. I'd been a university professor of philosophy for, for four years. I could debate about metaphysics, metaethics, metatheology, post-structuralism, post-industrialism, and postmodernism. If it was meta or post, I was all over it. But did I have a spiritual practice? Well, no, I didn't. Get a spiritual practice, the committee told me. It's contradictory to take up a path of self-acceptance and trusting in my own inner wisdom because an outside authority told me to, yet that's what I did. It's contradictory to judge myself for judging myself too much, yet that's what I did and still do, albeit somewhat more gently, usually. I've now had a chance to talk with a number of people on a path of serious spiritual practice, and all of us, or so it seems, began as I did in some form of contradiction. We felt broken, wrong, inadequate. We thought spiritual practice would fix us. But spiritual practice isn't about fixing anything, which is why there's no smooth curve toward becoming fixed. Spiritual awakening is about realizing that we aren't broke and don't need fixin'. We aren't broken and from the beginning never have been. 
Earlier, I listed some symptoms of developing spirituality, increased this and decreased that, and I mentioned Cloninger's measures of spirituality, self-forgetfulness, transpersonal identification, and acceptance. Do not, however, imagine that these are the goals of spiritual practice. Any practice that has a goal is not a spiritual practice. Yes, there is a role to play for intending to cultivate those qualities, but it's a rather small role, and attempting to measure progress toward such qualities is a delusion. A spiritual practice will tend, naturally on its own, but irregularly and unpredictably, to bring fuller recognition. Fuller recognition that we aren't broken that we are whole and perfect just as we are and always have been. And fuller recognition of our intrinsic wholeness will tend naturally on its own, but irregularly and unpredictably to bring those symptoms of developing spirituality. It's hard to really believe that we aren't broken and don't need fixing. Our culture constantly tells us we aren't good enough. Get better by this product, this treatment, this school, this exercise, this method. Spirituality is about remembering the fact of abundance in the midst of the daily barrage of messages of scarcity. Will recognition of abundance happen if you do the practice? I can tell you there will be more ups and downs than the stock market. But over the long haul, probably, yes. If you love just doing the practice, and you do it because it's who you are, and not with any idea that you're gaining something from it, if judgment about gain and loss, progress and regress falls away, and there's just you, loving who you are and loving the way you and the whole universe manifest in and through your practice, then yes, the fact of abundance is now clearer to you. We are doomed, and our time here is short, but we can make it a celebration. You may have recognized the picture on the front of today's order of service. It's from the 1964 film, Dr. Strangelove. At the end of that film, a bomber plane is set to release its nuclear payload, which will set off a nuclear conflagration to end the civilization. But the release mechanism jams, and Slim Pickens climbs down into the bomb bay to fix the jam. He succeeds, and the bomb is released while he's sitting on it. In the film's most memorable shot, Slim Pickens is waving his cowboy hat and whooping as he rides the bomb down to his and what will ultimately be the planet's destruction. Woohoo! Maybe that's what spirituality looks like. He does seem to be living in the moment. That was such a striking shot when I first saw it as a teenager, because I knew if I were falling out of the sky riding on a nuclear bomb, I would be freaked out in fear and despair. My God, my God, my God, I've got maybe one minute to live. But look at what Slim Pickens' character is doing with his one minute. All of us are riding that bomb 
Our time is so short before life will blow up on us. And there's something very pure about this fact. We get just this one chance at every minute, every moment. This is it. Amen.